Falling forth from ancient pastures, green and hoarding humour, onto shores that perished sooner than the tide could come back in, gazing up at the unscalable cliff, the descent from which had promised such fun, and had been fun, dreaming of grazing again. Hey everyone, welcome back to Solocene. This is the 15th episode in our nature series. And I would like to thank Aaron for opening us with a beautiful poem. Did you write that? Yes, I did. You're welcome, Alicia. That's a poem <laughs> that um, it kind of references like the mythologized image of the Golden Age, mm-hmm. the Garden of Eden, or the pastoral Arcadia, mm-hmm. from which our society has kind of gradually tumbled. And, um, you know, and the idea of like, us looking back up at that and thinking like, wow, that was a really nice place, which obviously is a little bit pseudo-historical, like it's not Mm -hmm. really accurate, but I think in terms of this semester, in terms of nature, the pristine wilderness that perhaps once was, it is actually, you know, kind of accurate. So today's episode is kind of playing into that a little bit, because our question for today is something like, how could the climate crisis have been averted through the use of time travel by us. Um, <laughs> and we're kind of using climate crisis as shorthand, or I was anyway, just for all big anthropogenic environmental issues, not just temperature change, but also like extinction and habitat loss mm-hmm. and pollution and other things like this. The destruction of nature. How could it have been avoided if two solocytes <laughs> got their hands on a time machine? So... The premise of Solocene is basically imagining an ideal future that is beautiful, sustainable, and tactile. So we're trying to basically, what if the podcast was around 300 years ago is kind of the idea. And I think it'll be a fun conversation. Yeah, I think that like we're 15 episodes into the nature semester and it has been a little bit challenging, I think, for us to breach the discussion of climate change, like legitimate fixing the issues of today because it's like it seems a little bit counterintuitive for the, the concept of Solocene as you just described it. And it's like, and there's also the fact that I think people can listen to other podcasts for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like we're not going to really say anything insightful on those, on those topics, I don't think, or anything that people haven't really heard that much, mm-hmm. in my opinion. So this is kind of our creative way of doing it, of like creating yeah, a pseudo scene. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the Solocene <laughs> of the past. And the episode was inspired by I think it was either last week or two weeks ago on the episode, on the podcast, you said, oh, 2015 or 2014, you know, when things went wrong. Mm-hmm. And so we were kind of like, well, when did things actually go wrong? Like in, in terms of the environment and in terms of nature. And I'm sure we have different answers for that because we haven't really talked a lot about our individual responses to this question for the mm-hmm. episode today. So we might be in wildly different places. <laughs> and I'll say it was also inspired by our recent watching of Doctor Who, which is a time travel TV show. And I'll say that the idea first came into my head a few years ago watching another movie, uh, Tenet, mm-hmm. Chris Nolan's movie, because spoilers for Tenet, people who haven't seen it, um, I think it's like three years old now, but still, if you don't want to be spoiled, skip ahead a couple minutes. The premise of that movie, we learn at the end of it, the villain kind of gives this monologue that says the reason he's trying to blow up the world or existence or you know some dust or explosion is because the sea levels rose and the future became so horrible to people mm-hmm. due to climate change that it would have been better just to end the world. And so they are sending back things in time 
to kind of preempt this by just ending it all. Mm-hmm. And we watched that and we're like, you know, it's, it's a creative concept, but what if it was more optimistic and the people from the future were just sending back things that could stop climate change and make a better future? Like that's a better, mm-hmm. that's a more, um, a more hopeful film. So that's kind of what we're trying to do today, I think. Yeah, that's basically what this whole project is, that you don't turn into a Thanos or a tenant villain in that you're like, let's just get rid of half of the population. That'll solve all the issues. Because, like, I guess technically it would. Mm. But the idea of the solar scene is Building. for climate activists or people who are even just creative or science, like anyone, to just have, like, an outlet to think of, like, fun ideas. Because it's like 50% of the things we mentioned on here aren't going to be remotely practical. Well, but we'll they could that. inspire something practical or it's sci-fi and then sci-fi can become yes. reality as we've learned through history you mean my idea for the city scoped air fresheners yeah i think uh, about those often so i seen recommends for this week i didn't really have like a piece of art to to recommend you can mention one if you if you'd like but i was thinking just so seen recommends bundling up <laughs> so like recommends some information behind that Aaron, or just gonna yeah well montreal has been historically cold at least in our lives like very cold it's been like minus 37 or whatever with the wind chill yeah and there was some frostbite incidents <laughs> so bundle up that's all yeah. i say you're not better than the cold the cold will freeze the ice crystals in your skin what i wrote on my skin <laughs> on my on my paper was humble thyself before nature yeah so Solacine recommends layers. But I also think, okay, that's, a, that's, a, that's an okay in to the discussion of the episode because I wanted to kind of preface everything with the idea that, like I know this is, seems like it's being pedantic towards the exercise, but there is kind of a futility to going back and trying to change things like that mm-hmm. because I think that there's a degree to like environmental issues where the species had to make these mistakes. Yeah, it was inevitable to, to, to an from extent. Them. Kind of like me with the frostbite. It's like... Mm-hmm. You had to get bitten a little bit to to learn to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's completely true because I was on a few forums, which I hope to never come across again, (laughs) about time travel and like this question. It was like, well, you'd create a paradox because then jet fuel wouldn't have been created and there wouldn't be these, you wouldn't be able to. And it's like, okay, just for fun. And I'm sure the people who posted on there were just for fun. Mm-hmm. But of course, there are some things. And like, of course, at the end of the day, you could solve all these issues, but just different people would come along and yes, like change that's what them. I was thinking. But it's still kind of fun to yeah. learn from the past for our future. Well, I think it's it's a genuinely like educational exercise to look back and be like, well, what, where exactly could mm-hmm. things have diverged to be more interesting? And obviously, there's, as you just mentioned, there's like the butterfly effect where you might end up creating something even worse, mm-hmm. which is like, yeah, it could happen. And yeah. I think there's also the idea that if you go back as like a, a soothsayer from the from the future saying, this is going to happen, guys. One, there were probably a lot of people already saying that. Like we like to think that uh, a sustainability consciousness kind of emerged in the 1970s or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I think really it's been around for a very long time. It was just sometimes quite fringe or maybe it was at the core of a, a story or a religion or something. So you don't really recognize it for what it is. Mm-hmm. And people make the mistakes despite hearing this. And even mm-hmm. science, it's like scientists were talking about the dangers of certain industrial things for like mm-hmm. a long time, but people did them regardless. So something that I kind of tried to focus on a little bit is not just where to go back or when to go back and change things, but how would I do so and how would mm-hmm. I prove, like what would I bring back from the future? Yeah, I think that's a fun concept. Anyway, you can start. Yeah, where I wanted to start was where all conversations start for Solocene is cars. <laughs> 
Because here at Soul Scene, we are not sponsored by cars. Yeah. Whatever the opposite of sponsorship is, we are like, maybe they're trying to pay for our podcast to be demoted. Yeah. The big car. They're suing us. Yeah. <laughs> but basically, I said I'd go back and instead of Ford making the assembly line of the gas-powered vehicles, I would do electric vehicles. Oh, okay. And I didn't know this. I was kind of shocked. Electric vehicles, EVs, were around since 1830. Okay. The first motorized vehicles were powered by batteries, Hmm. which I didn't know. And I was like, excuse me? We had cars 53 years before we had gas-powered cars? So the first cars were powered by batteries. But obviously, we didn't have rechargeable batteries right away. Hmm. So like, it was equally unsustainable. It was one and done. Yeah, it was like a parlor trick, as they described it. But by 1859, they had rechargeable batteries. So they just had electric vehicles. And of course, we are using coal to power grids. But I'll get to that later, in that we also didn't need to have coal powering the grids. Hmm. So I'd go back and say all EVs. Of course, that would have caused other issues. But I feel like that's a good place to start. Mining. It's just not... Mining for the batteries, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Is start with the cars. Start by saying right. no stink chariots, just electric ones. I'm surprised you, because we would still get the same highway, highway dominated like infrastructure and, you know, car cities and things like this. Yeah. So. Well, I'm going to get to that in my, um, my paradigm shift oh, sure. situation. Okay. Okay. But I'm like, okay, this technology doesn't, is never going to come into existence. And Ford would maybe produce electric vehicles instead of gas powered ones. Because I think cars are cool to an extent for like fire vehicles, emergency vehicles. Like they have technically a role. Perhaps buses. Buses, exactly. Like in the solo scene, there'll be buses, there'll be trains, there'll be ways of getting around other than on your feet because like it's nice to be able to see lots of the world. But starting with, yeah, that's my step one. So you are basically going back in time to stop the combustion engine for cars, Mm -hmm. which I feel like might also have stopped it for planes. Yeah. So, might be a big like ripple effect there. So I was thinking, just okay. no combustion engines, that's never discovered. <laughs> sure. Okay. My first one, I was thinking, if I can move on to yeah. my first one. Nuclear came to mind as the first thing, mm-hmm. like stopping nuclear disasters. Yeah. Because if we could do this, then public opinion maybe never sways and governments stop, or governments continue the mm-hmm. construction of it that kind of stopped... Like worldwide, there was a big effect in Chernobyl, which was obviously in 1986, which strengthened a lot, a lot of the anti-nuclear kind of mm-hmm. uh, sentiment that had been growing in a lot of the world because of previous uh, incidents. There's been like over a hundred serious nuclear accidents. Yeah, so, so if you could stop them all, though, or maybe bring back technology to like teach them how yeah. to stabilize them a little better. I was thinking, so the the ones I was targeting was obviously Chernobyl, just because it was mm-hmm. so disastrous. And especially disastrous for like, because the spectacle of it, in a way. Mm -hmm. And also uh, Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania in the USA. And I read this article that said that after Three Mile Island, which was in 1979, uh, United States public approval of nuclear dropped by about 15%. So it was like 60-something to like Mm 40-something, which doesn't sound like that big a thing. But that was just kind of in the general sense, like, how do you feel about nuclear? So roughly 40% of people were thinking it was okay. So the majority Mm -hmm. were against it. But in terms of specific cases, 
how do you feel about us constructing new nuclear power sites? How do you feel about one beside your town? You know, like that kind of NIMBYism, not in my backyardism. Mm -hmm. That grew like, I don't even think you'd be able to quantify that because obviously the, the image of it now was like something, some destructive, mm -hmm. awful force that humans couldn't control. So I think that going back and preventing these and teaching them about what went wrong, how to fix it, maybe better cooling ways. Like I'm not a nuclear physicist, so I, I'm not going to speak about the individual disasters and the like mechanisms of the reactors and how that could have been, how exactly these things could have been prevented. But I think if they were prevented, I mean, energy production would have been a lot better than it became. It would have bought us close to a hundred years yeah. of like figuring things out mm -hmm. technology wise and trying to change people's minds so it definitely would have been good i'd never have believed that nuclear is a good thing overall like i in the civil scene i don't picture there being nuclear but i do think it could have been had there been no disasters and it was safe then like really it would have been a good what do you call it transition fuel yeah because I don't think we should be using natural gas as a transition fuel, but with nuclear, it is technically clean energy. Clean energy, yeah. yeah. So I think that's a cool spot. I uh, didn't talk about nuclear because I right. I'm pretty anti-nuclear just because of renewable, like solar and wind and stuff. Like yeah, that. yeah. No, I thought about that. I was also thinking like I was. I guess it just came to mind first because I was thinking especially about public opinion and not not just about emissions. I was like. These were very big spectacles. It was like people were gung-ho for before, you know, like talking generally. And afterwards, it's like everybody, it's mm -hmm. like maybe not our generation because we, I think, are, we're kind of like, I wouldn't say more educated, but we went around during those things. So it's mm -hmm. like we're less averse to it kind of instinctively. But like I think most older generations, like my parents are, every time nuclear comes up, they're always be like, oh, no, it's terrible. You know, like that's ridiculous. Yeah. And I think that's, that was just a lasting effect that it had that was really for the worse. Mm -hmm. But then I was thinking about like some ripple effects. So there was the initial big decrease globally after Chernobyl and before that federally in the United States after the Three Mile Island. It was something like 51 reactors were, were canceled in the next five years after Three Mile Island. So it's like a big deal. Um, but also it kind of helped bolster a lot of environmental organizations in other countries because it it was such a big thing for awareness mm -hmm. like in germany i saw because of chernobyl that's what made them create their federal environmental ministry so it's like this it wasn't all bad is what i'm saying mm -hmm. so stopping it that was just an idea for how the ripple effects could be not so great mm -hmm. yeah for sure i was my next thing was about these aren't really in order so just bear with me okay the next thing is about the current wars between Tesla and Edison based on, was that a movie or was that a Doctor Who episode? The Prestige, the, the Prestige. movie, I think. Yeah. So basically, Tesla, Nikola Tesla, he was around, around 1900 until later on. So he was way before the environmental movements as we know it, but he basically designed a bladeless turbine. He was a big pusher of alternating currents, which over distances less than a thousand kilometers for like transmitting electricity are way more effective because there's less loss. So it's like you turn it on and off as it's demanded. Whereas Edison, Thomas Edison, was a proponent of direct current, which is just pumping electricity all the time. 
And at the end of the day, Edison won out and most of the power grids in the United States are direct current. But the reason he won, this is the crux of what I would try and change. Okay. And it's a bigger issue. So this is a good example of it. Is he just had more marketing power behind him, basically. <laughs> he had a big conglomerate of like rich people behind him marketing his techniques and he was kind of lobbying the government to like put their money into this and he won and then tesla who had basically been trying to harness niagara falls and like basically tesla also believed in free energy for all so he was very aggressive radical man and but he lost because he didn't have the money behind him and so this is like a very small example i think the power grids would have been designed completely differently at the end of the day if we could do it now, but the money behind bad technology. Okay. Because it's like in the the myth of capitalism, we'll call it, is that the best technology would technically win. It's like the competition is good because it'll cause people to keep evolving, but I think that's just a myth in that you would have a really garbage technology or like a relatively garbage technology, but if you have the marketing techniques and the the connections and so on, then that would win out. Hmm. So the example of Tesla and Edison is that the worst technology won out. And I think if I could go back in time, I would explain to regulators or the people who were choosing like these different people bidding for the, the public contract of being in charge of building the power grids. I would advise the government to not allow things that are supposed to be in the public interest to be lobbied or to be pushed ahead just because they have more people behind them or more money behind them. Because that might have the ripple effect of stopping like fossil fuel lobbying as well Mm -hmm. and just various other capitalist interventions in what what would otherwise be best for the people. That's what I was thinking. And my my head kind of went to like the drug industry and that is like Mm. you shouldn't have people selling drugs to the public because you can't actually trust them. Big pharma. Yeah. So it's kind (laughs) of like, I think it would have a ripple effect on a lot of these other things that are big issues now. And because this was kind of at the turn of the millennia, I just thought it would be a good... Mm. I feel like a more straightforward way would be to go back and kidnap Edison. Mm. Or... What are you going to do? Electrocute him? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Whoops, there was a mistake in the alternator. Right. Poor Edison. Should have used the AC, not the DC. Yeah. And he... I forgot about him going around and showing these exhibitions where he would electrocute animals. Wasn't Edison just... Don't people just say he was a bit of a hack now all around? Yeah. I'm not really sure how true that is. He mm-hmm. might be an American hero. I don't know. Yeah. But then also I remember Tesla was kind of chalked up to being a hack in his later life because he was like talking to pigeons and stuff. He was a very esoteric man. Yeah. I know that. I do think Doctor Who might have covered it in a latter stage episode mm-hmm. that I didn't see. Anyway, speaking of the Thomas Edison Nikola Tesla feud, the current mm. wars, as you would call them, the organism of the week for today. What a good drawing, Aaron. It's an ant. Thank you. It's the black garden ant, the common black ant. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've known this guy for a long time. I have. Uh, Latin name, Lassius Niger, I think. And do you want to guess what kind of ant, like in the Black Garden Ant society this is? There's three different types. 
There's worker ants. Yes. I don't know the other types the of queen. ants. Queen. The queen ant. And are there like the aristocrat? And the, the males. <laughs> the males. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to guess that this is a queen ant. This is the worker ant. Okay. Just like the basic. Mm-hmm. Don't you recognize it? It's hard to tell with the scale. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a very big no one. no scale given. What would you do if there was actually an ant just this size and I was just holding it up like this? I'd be pretty freaked out, honestly. Right. <laughs> anyway, um, so the Black Garden Ant, larger colonies, they can reach up to, do you want to guess how many workers? A million. No, 40,000. That kind of makes <laughs> it, it, kind of makes it uh, seem a little bit underwhelming. Four to 7,000 is the average. Okay. The worker ants, they live usually just a few months to a year. The males, they live usually just a few weeks. Aww. The queen, do you want to guess how long she usually lives for? A year. Average is like 14 years, I think. What? Yeah. A 14-year-old ant? The longest one was like 29 years. That's what I saw online. Yeah. That's like creepy. Right. I don't like that. They I have wisdom. Quite, like I they're going to be a, smart. quite a lot about ants. Okay, tell was. me about ants. So they mate on the wing. The queen... And and the man, the male ants, they mate flying. Male ants all have hmm. wings. Okay. So every worker ant is a female. Wow. Which I didn't know. Yeah. Feminists, feminist icons, the ants. Right. Love that. Um, <laughs> the queen ant kind of, after the mating, holds up or holds down, should I say, and digests the wings. Okay. Of you know, digests the wings. The male ants, they're basically just like flying sperm. They're That's just, what it sounds like. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> this is just one of over 12,000 ant species. Mm-hmm. And they are present on every continent except Antarctica. And what an irony that is. Yeah, it is. Antarctica. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> <laughs> did you write down that pun or did you just come up with it? Uh, no, I, I wrote it. I put the okay. A-N-T in all caps. Mm. So I see. I'm always kind of nervous that... Because we're on YouTube, for people who don't know. If you're listening to this on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, find us on YouTube. I think my notes are kind of in the shot. Yeah. So I feel like people will kind of read upside down my tiny puns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was worried they're going to read upside down my typos because I can't yeah. spell. Do you still have your, like, very aggressive notes? Do you still do those? Aggressive notes? Remember you used to ro- write with, like, sound effects and stuff? No. Ex- a lot of exclamation points, and I think some swearing even. Oh, yeah. Those used to happen. Let me just give a quick... In high school. Yeah. They get pretty... Yeah, all the ones here are pretty neat. Mine is just dense. Mm-hmm. And penciled. Yeah. So my next thing is my favorite conspiracy theory, which I would go back, learn about, and yeah. then maybe just stop. Flat Earth. So... <laughs> <laughs> no, my, it's not fully conspiracy, but it's also not fully reality. Fake birds. But, no. Is that General Motors went and created this company, in air quotes, called the, like, streetcar company. And they went around, they bought up a bunch of streetcars, so, like, trams and stuff, Mm. which were affordable public transit. And then, within a year or two, closed them all down in hopes that it would force people to buy cars. And in a post-war trial, they were convicted of conspiring to monopolize, which is illegal in North America, you can't monopolize an industry, but they were conspiring to by getting rid of the streetcars, and it makes me angry because I like streetcars. And it's like at the end of the day, buses are technically better for the environment and just easier yeah. to like replace and stuff. You mean trams? Trams, yeah. I love a tram. I love a tram too, 
Um, but they're like expensive and they're a little bit bulky. But I liked the idea of trams because it's like they're just one lane that's like cars can't drive in. So it's like yeah. there'd be fewer cars, obviously affordable public transit, but GM General Motors were trying to encourage people to buy cars, but also they were putting buses on the streets and then they would pay they would be getting money from all the bus parts. Be a lot easier to make the trams driverless as well mm-hmm. than it is to make cars or buses driverless. Yeah, and I just think they're more aesthetic. They're yeah. they like they have a bit so of is this a conspiracy or did this happen? It happened. All right. But the conspiracy element is that even if they didn't buy up the trans, people probably still would have wanted cars because of the autonomy and so on. But it's like, I do think it pushed a lot of people to need cars. So maybe it would have been just like a later adoption or people would have kind of realized this is a silly thing for all of us to have cars and we could all be getting on the tram. But because it wasn't an option, it was like, oh, you get a, a cheap car. Yeah. Gas was cheap. There was more and more infrastructure. So I would just go back and be like, by the way, guys, don't do that. <laughs> so stop that from happening. How would you stop it? I would empower the people. How? I would show them a picture right. of a parking garage mm. or of like a traffic jam in LA. <laughs> I'd show them the opening scene of La La Land and they'd go, we don't want to live but that would be world. kind of fun also, though. <laughs> it'd be like everyone's always singing in the future. Yeah, but I would show them something like that that made cars look really horrendous and be like, so they're going to try and get rid of your trams. And people would be like, we don't want them to get rid of our trams. Use them to get mm. to work every day. And I'll say, and they're also going to try and sell you these cars. They're like, well, that sounds good. Maybe you could just talk about the number of car accidents. Yeah. The number of people who die by those. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I had some ideas about what I would bring back as proof as well. They're a little bit... I was going to match them to the scenario, and they kind of are, but really it's just like, what would I bring back to appear as like a wizard to people? Mm-hmm. So um, the first one is some kind of evidence of plastics or microplastics. Mm. I was thinking about just, this sounds kind of gory, but a fish that when they it open, open it, it's just yeah. full of plastic. You know, I always find those images very effective. Or maybe like some polyester clothing in addition to that. Mm-hmm. Say, wow, doesn't this feel nice? But wait, open that fish. Mm. And I think that this this is good because it targets, it's obviously an environmental concern because of all the ecosystems affected, but also it targets the human health, which is really a universal and very close to the front of our minds, like mm. fixation. Like this is a visceral reaction. And there's an element of disgust, like when you open the fish and it's full of plastic. It's this idea that we have so polluted the oceans that we can't really healthily eat from it anymore. And also a lot of the land has, has plastic pollution as well, which is a big problem our clothes and i could talk about the potential impacts obviously this gets into a little bit of conjecture because it's not really scientifically proven what microplastics do to us but i could just make some things up and be like this does this fertility like crazy things like this and Mm -hmm. uh, i think people would that would really scare them from Mm -hmm. plastics i think now as this information comes out because some of the things you're talking about are still like in development of like knowing if things are legit that's what i mean but it's like we're so numb to everything now that a hundred scientists to come and say by the way everyone's going to be infertile in 15 years yeah. and people be like oh that's like they kind of might have they might have like not, it could not be exactly to that but <laughs> i think the problem or a lot of people will be like well that's good because yeah. it's such an anti-human you know pov that people will be like mm-hmm. we're a scourge on the planet we don't need more humans or whatever yeah but um, i think information 50 years ago that would would have like 
rallied everyone to become activists for something. Yeah. Now it's just like, well, I've heard that on Tuesday. Mm. It's just something new every day, which I don't think is bad that we're learning more. It's too many causes now. But it's our, our numbness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something else I'd bring back as proof is just the satellite imagery, maybe like a time lapse mm. of the planet going from green to gray. Yeah. Due to urbanization and population growth and all that. I think I was thinking about how I could show them about extinction, about different animals. And I mean, there would be ways of doing that, but I feel like this is like a massive generalization because as we've said before in Solocene, there were a lot of people in the past and a lot of different pasts. So there were like different mindsets, but I think generally we might be more empathetic to other species now than perhaps we ever were on like a wide scale. It's so true. I think if you showed them, this is the last elephant, this is the last rhino, this is the last panda, that kind of thing. I feel like it might not, I feel like it might not hit as hard as if you just showed them a wide shot of the planet, which would blow their mind in general mm -hmm. and say, look how green and lush it is. And then look what happens when you turn it up a little bit and it just yeah. gets this shriveled up gray ball. Yeah. I honestly think that is more effective because people valued aesthetics a bit more in like, the environment that they lived in yeah and they would people were a bit more um subsistence so if you're like okay the soil is getting degraded mm -hmm. like you can't even grow an orange that's like nutriently yeah. dense and people would be like whoa that's pretty crazy yeah and then the third thing i wanted to i was like we need to show some climate change data like we need to actually talk about this big issue mm -hmm. but i feel like Data is a very muddy thing to bring back to a lot of people who were probably quite data illiterate. I think today we're still quite data illiterate. So like going back pretty much any distance in the past, it would be quite difficult to get your point across and really make people care about it. Yeah, like, like saying atmospheric CO2 is at this concentration. People would be like, cool, <laughs> like interesting. Yeah. And they also don't maybe have the historical context to where like, oh, it's rising. Okay. Or like migrations are rising. Okay. Or if they did, then it would be like today when it's like, but temperatures rise in the past. You know this happens naturally, like blah, blah, blah. Um, so I'm not really sure what to do with this. Maybe just talk about fossil fuels uh, becoming a limited resource. Like mm -hmm. Maybe just talk about that would be the best thing because that, that would make them care about it and make them look for alternatives. Be like, you know that's going to run out soon. Mm -hmm. And they'd be like, oh, it's not infinite. Like yeah. That might be just a more effective way. When I was trying to think about these things to bring back, it was pretty much just the same way that I think today's climate change deniers let's say should be engaged with which is almost to take to allow the whole conversation to take place on their terms mm -hmm. i.e everything that such a person would want to say to discredit any data regarding climate change just for the sake of conversation let them believe like let that mm -hmm. be okay like there's no climate change scientists made this up blah 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 and then just talk about but what about this time lapse of the earth going really gray what about all these plastics mm -hmm. you know what about like, I think that is, because those things are inarguable. Mm -hmm. So that's just, yeah. Yeah, I've always thought that there's obviously a switch to a bit more talking about how varied climate change is, talking yeah. about coral reefs and so on, which is just indisputable. You can show a picture of a dead coral reef and people are like, yeah, it's dead. But it's still almost too late. So bringing it back or re-engaging people with these images and these concepts. Yeah. Imagery is very visceral. I like that. With mm -hmm. data, people always find a way to argue it or find ambiguities or stuff. Mm -hmm. But there, there's so much about today's environmental issues that is inarguable and just just really common sense. Like It doesn't require any literacy or, or mathematical literacy to look at it or historical context. You can just be like, 
this plus this obviously equals bad. Like, mm-hmm. I think that's very, like, that's what people should lean into. Yeah, it's frustrating because the science was always there. Like, as the technology would evolve, there'd be people saying, this is bad. Like, there were the mm. Luddites when it was, like, everything was getting mechanized and they were burning factories and whatever. It's like, there were always dissenters, but they were so passionate, I feel like, that it mm. was always, like, a swing in the opposite direction. Yeah. There weren't often moderate people. Well, like, for instance, environmental predictions have done a lot more harm than good for the cause because mm-hmm. people just say, well, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Florida's not underwater. You know, none of this happened. So yeah. why should I believe? Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. Or governments or companies discrediting legit science because it doesn't back their project that they're working on. So it's like, say a government was planning to build a bridge and then the environmental assessment was conducted because everything nowadays needs an assessment. And the assessment says, probably shouldn't do that. They just like kind of discredit it and you can find a scientist who will Hmm. support your thing. So it's a little sketchy. We were watching Beethoven yesterday and you (laughs) said... Imagine before the internet, the power that like experts would have. Right. And it's so true. But I think today, because there's so many experts, there's always going to be the corrupt ones yeah. who are also corrupt and spreading misinformation online or to mm. their field. And I just think some kind of, I don't know how you could combat that. But I guess that's the point of the podcast to figure out how to combat yeah. it. So Beethoven, the 1992 dog movie, maybe that could have been our solo scene recommends. I'm not sure. What happens in it is that the vet, who's actually crooked, he's uh, corrupt, mm-hmm. basically tries to get this family to put their dog down for his own personal gains. I'm not going to say what it is because it's so dark. He's um, going to sell the dog. For? For research. Ballistic right. research, you <laughs> yeah, could say. Ballistic research. Um, and it's like, in because he makes this thing up about St. Bernard's, they're always you know doing whatever. But before the internet... Like, if a vet told you that today, you'd look it up and be like, no, they're not. Yeah. So, I do think that is a great thing. And we're going to be talking about the internet. This is a little bit of a spoiler, but quite shortly in some, some future episodes. So. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about the internet um, conversations because this is, there's like the nature series and there's the internet series and that just is what Solacine sure. is. <laughs> also, on the topic of Beethoven, I looked it up and Chris, who played Beethoven, that's the name of the dog, mm-hmm. he does indeed have his own IMDb page and Letterbox page. Good. So, In case anyone's interested in his filmography. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I talked a little bit about deforestation and I, you know when you read something you're like, well, duh, but you just feel kind of stupid for not thinking these things? Sure. Deforestation until the 50s, like it's always where there's humans, there's deforestation for all of human history. Like it's just we cut down trees. It's how we heat our homes, build our homes, find a place to live. But in the 50s, when things started getting mechanized and there was just like machines that could just clear cut, that's when it became a big old issue. And in the rainforest, people realized, oh, if we cut all these trees down, burn everything, then the soil becomes really rich for growing crops. So there were a lot of these really rapid developments, but regulations couldn't keep up with them. So I would say making mechanized cutting illegal. Hmm. Yeah. Or maybe just bringing back a VHS of Fern Gully, the last rainforest and showing them. Yeah, because it's like I can't imagine cutting down an old growth tree. Like these trees are just thousands of years old, bigger than anything people had probably even built up to that point. Yeah. And just slicing it down. But it's like you couldn't cut these things down by hand. It had to take chainsaws and like big machines Mm -hmm. so it's like i'm 
we'll always be cutting down trees for all of the future and all of the past. But if you have to cut it down with an axe, it's a bit different than cutting it down with yeah. a machine. So I just think some kind of information around surrounding that about maybe even how long trees take to regrow because people always say i mean wood, well, wood today is largely quite sustainable actually mm-hmm. because they figured out like growing and stuff it's not yeah. ideal but it's a lot better than than it was than it was i mean there's still very bad practices today but mm-hmm. in the main i mean yeah also this episode like you just said when you were reading about the rainforest you're like well duh like this is a bad thing mm-hmm. and i think we have this this context now but something that i think people often kind of fall into that i i wanted to make the play devil's advocate a little bit is that it's very easy to blame older generations or like do it with a lot of spite even Mm -hmm. but i think generally people were doing just what seemed natural and they were excited about new technologies and like in this instance they might have just been trying to feed people like so often so many of these bad or you know bad for the environment let's say developments were because we were just trying to feed more people Mm -hmm. or just trying to live longer or just trying to house people better mm-hmm. or heat them. Like it was, it's it's a humanitarian concern that people had first and foremost. I mean, it might have been selfish, you know, profiteering or whatever, but really it's, they're wicked problems. Let's put it like that. Yeah. I didn't even touch on the Green Revolution because it really was like without the Green Revolution, millions of people just would have died and there wouldn't be the population we have today. Yeah. So it's just like, I didn't want to touch that because it is just so mm. complex. But I suppose if you could go back, you could just say, okay, GMOs. I'm not against GMOs because it can just make crops more resistant to drought and so on. Mm-hmm. But it's like once you have these certain set of seeds and these things that are resistant to crops, just not pushing the image of food as perfect. Like you can buy at the grocery store like the imperfect vegetables. Yes, and it's always yes. like, what's even wrong with these? Just kind of there is a line. Like there is a line in the green revolution where it's like, okay, this is good. But then when it's switched into all the marketing and the mm-hmm. trying to sell you bottled water, that's like $30. It's like, that's where it gets sketchy. And then therefore exploited of and like unjust. Um, but yeah, I won't go too much into the green revolution that caused a lot of issues, but also, yeah, it was probably the most beneficial thing in human history. Well, speaking about population growth, that was the next thing after nuclear that I was like, if we could try and limit this, go back and try and limit this in a humane way. Like obviously, it's a contentious topic. And for that reason, I didn't pick a date or any even period of dates um, or any like numbers for population because mm-hmm. I would have just been plucking it out of thin air. But it's basically like from 1800, so like with industrialization to today, population in the world went from something like 900 million to 8 billion, mm-hmm. which it is today. And people talk about how 10 or 11 or 12 billion is technically sustainable. And I think that is probably true, like manageable, mm-hmm. but this is with very low consumption and I don't think people really want to live those lives like in general. I think an ideal population is one that has access to material goods and a little bit of land and energy that they want. And I mean, I know we want it to be renewable in the future, but also like meat, things like this. So... Maybe just going back, I won't say when, and I won't say where, because I'm not sure, but going back and like educating people, educating women, you know, upping women's rights, getting better healthcare to places so that child child mortality wasn't so high, Mm -hmm. birth control, all these things. Like if that had happened maybe 
like a hundred years earlier than it all did. Yeah, because it happened in the mid 1900s. So yeah, yeah push it like a hundred years earlier. Because mm-hmm. that would have, and then it would have then spread to all corners of the earth. Whereas now it's still spreading. Yes, knowledge and like female rights, obviously. Yeah, it's not a bad thing if you're going back in time to help people realize, because it's gonna cause a lot of other solutions. You're gonna have the next female Einstein hundreds of years earlier than she actually was born. Like you're so talking about yourself? Things. Absolutely <laughs> not. Um, there's just so many things about resource extraction that it's kind of just like can lump it all together, teach people that if you overfish, the species will go extinct, all that stuff. Yeah. Whaling, stop all that industry <laughs> a little earlier. Um, and then the one other thing, this is the big topic that I had trouble talking about because I'm not anti-globalization. But I'm also not entirely pro-globalization. But there's different types of globalization. I think the spread of information, 100% wonderful. There's something called the technique effect, which is when a more developed country has developed a green technology to like produce something, and then they export it to the countries that they're operating in. Hmm. So those are for multinational corporations that like they're maybe producing their things in China, but they the company is run out of America, so they can export this green technology. So I just think there's nothing wrong with the flow of information, nothing wrong with the flow of people. Yes. Of, But my issue is with the flow of resources to an extent. But I think the flow of resources goes hand in hand with people's mindset when it comes to overconsumption. So it's like, well, technically, the flowers being grown in Peru are better for the environment to be imported to Canada instead of trying to grow them Yes. In the winter in a mm-hmm. Canadian greenhouse. But it's like, that's, to me, not the issue. The issue is that we're demanding roses in the dead of winter. So it's like, you'd have to change people's mindset surrounding seasonality of their product consumption. But then I think, if we can then do that, stop the demand, then the globalization of like materials would be reduced. Certainly, things could still flow around. I love bananas. Yeah. I think bananas are cool. But it's just like maybe there's certain times of the year where you have to forego the bananas. Or if you really love them, move, move to, to a Peru. country yeah. where the bananas are grown. But I just think the globalization of production is just one of the leading drivers of unsustainability. It was also massively accelerated with the world wars because people realized or like nation states realized that they can just like house power over another country or they can like work together to make things happen. Yeah. Um. But it was so rushed and there was all this money poured into the formation of the internet and so on. And it's just like, had these things been slightly more slowly developed, they perhaps would have been developed with a bit of nuance and realizing, oh, maybe just because you can produce a dollarama worth of products doesn't mean you should be allowed to import it to a different country or you should do it. So it's just like stopping people's consumer mindset getting to the point that it is today where you think you need a hundred t-shirts yeah. and so on. That was my last point too, but I think you said it in a more concise and articulate way than I, which <laughs> which um, is impressive. So I spent a lot of time on that one because I'm always well done, hesitant yeah. to speak about globalization because I'm at once super pro-globalization. No, but I like the way it. you split up the globalization yeah. of resources of people and of ideas or mm-hmm. of uh, technique yeah. or information. Oh, that's very... Thank you. Very neat. The only thing, like, I I read this article on BBC Future, which is called How the World Embraced Consumerism. I'd recommend that because it was a really cool, like, outlining of it. Mm. But 
is that this goes along with my like my frostbite analogy. I feel like it's just it's one of those things that however many times people were maybe told in the 1920s or at the start of the world wars because i'm sure there were some radicals being like you don't need all this stuff or that guy in ancient greece who was like living out of a barrel all that kind of thing i feel like it's one of those things that a culture just needs to go through to then get to the mm-hmm. all white minimalist living all white walls this is and like uh, <laughs> all white and beige minimalist living like ethos that, sh- that you see taking hold now like with gen z i know there's also like the xian and you know, fast fashion contingent, but I, I, there's so much more of an awareness mm-hmm. with people younger than us than there are with people older than us, for instance. And I just feel like it's one of those things that had to have happened. So the mm-hmm. only way I kind of tweaked what you said is that I would go back and just try and stop the plastic. I would like, yeah. because branding, I just, like I said, I just feel like it's one of those things that had to happen. So taking that into account, I'd be like, how can we do this without making it all polyester and wrapped in plastic? Mm-hmm. And even that is kind of a riddled thing because the development of plastics, a big part of it was that um, it was a shift away from materials like ivory. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, that was a good thing because they stopped hunting, you know, to such an extent, like elephants and, as you said, whales and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like plastics do some good. Yeah, I mean, even for sanitation purposes. Yeah, and sanitation. Like, it's like people aren't dying of... Right. food poisoning anywhere near as much mm. and i just think there needs to be a bit of a a readjustment like we've overcompensated everything hyper sterile like that you buy at the grocery store it's like maybe you have to wash your vegetables when you get them home yeah. bit of a hassle but it's like better than everything being wrapped in plastic well here's an example like celluloid for film mm-hmm. that would not have happened if if it weren't for like the plastic uh mm-hmm. the plastic age or the plastic advancement so i think that was generally a good thing so um so yeah it's a difficult conversation but i think just in terms of saying just stop wrapping everything in plastic stop the single used plastic water bottles even just stop that like there's so many things that just did not need to exist whatsoever plastic bags yeah so um i think if we could have just toned that down and gotten to this i think quite promising age of conscious minimalism Mm -hmm. without without so um, almost irreparably the, the, breaking everything. The garbage island patch in the ocean yes. would be excellent. Right, but imagine if we had gone to this point and it's like everyone's still lining up for the new sneakers at Foot Locker or whatever, but there's no plastic in any of it. Yeah. Like that would be kind of a... It would be bad socially, mm-hmm. but maybe not so bad environmentally. And also I think we would have reached it a little bit quicker. Yeah, I think so. So thank you all for listening. We love having these chats next week is probably going to be our last in the nature series so definitely tune in for that for us to wrap up all the loose ends yeah tune in for the big quiz mm-hmm. oh no i'm not ready for the big yeah, quiz you're gonna get quizzed <laughs> also please subscribe it's very helpful we put a lot of work into the podcast and love making it and we really like when other people get to see it well, we have so. a comment because we really like hearing your comments even if they're hate comments yeah. i like those i pin them up on the wall and i do crunches looking at them good Bye, guys.